0: Audio Ground School Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Nick from Part Time Pilot, and we are going to continue with episode three of the Audio Ground School Podcast. And we are in section two, Operations of Aircraft Systems, lesson three of the Online Ground School. Again, if you want to follow along, you can go to parttimepilot.com and just click on the menu on online ground school to sign up it's lifetime access it's 100 money back guarantee if you don't pass but no not one single student has not passed every single student has passed we have still yet to have a failure so anyways if you want to follow along do the quizzes watch the videos see the diagrams the visual diagrams you can do that by signing up at part all right, so let's go uh, lesson three, aircraft lights. And if we have time, we'll get into lesson four, cockpit instruments. And I'm guessing that's probably all we'll get, get to today. All right, aircraft lights. So as part of the minimum equipment required for flight, uh, there are several kinds of lights required by the FAA. Each kind, their purpose, their color, and their location, we will talk about uh, now. <laughs> so first we'll start off with position lights. The FAA requires that there be at least one left and forward facing red light. So it has to be red and it has to be facing forward and to the left so that it can only be seen by people who are in that range. So forward and to the left of you. One right and forward facing green light. So again, this is on the right wing tip and it's facing to the right and forward and it's a green light and then one rear facing white position light. So this would be on the tail and it faces behind you and it is white. The colors are chosen to give other pilots an idea of which direction you are traveling when they see you at night. So seeing a red light only or a red light and a white light means that the aircraft's left side is facing you and the aircraft is crossing in front of you from right to left. So again. This is how you use the color coordination of the position lights at night to determine where the traffic is headed and where it's coming from, right? So you can tell if you see the red light, you can say, okay, I know its left wingtip is facing me. So if its left wingtip is facing me, that means it's crossing me from the right to the left. Uh, Seeing a green light only or a green light and a white light means that the aircraft's right side is facing you and the aircraft is crossing in front of you, from left to right. So that's the opposite. When you see, when you see a green light, you know that the right wingtip is facing you, and therefore you know that it's going from your left to the right with that right wingtip facing you. And if you see a both a right. A red light and a green light. Uh, that means you're seeing both wingtips, which likely means that aircraft is traveling directly towards you because you're able to see the left wingtip and right wingtip lights. Be on the lookout for that. And then if you only see a white light, that means the aircraft is flying away from you because you're you're looking at that the white light on the back of the tail that's facing towards the back. Now, these position lights, they don't flash or blink. They are solid in color. So that's how you distinguish them from like an anti-collision light which we'll get to in a sec which does flash because anti-collision light can be white or red and you'll always see that because it's omnidirectional we're just talking position lights they're solid so they don't they never extinguish so it's it's not flashing or anything like that or strobing or anything like that and they're either found on the the tip of the tail or the wingtips we talked a little bit about the anti-collision light. It's usually on top of the vertical stabilizer, the topmost part of the tail, so it's the most visible. Because it needs to be FAA requires it to be omnidirectional, which means it needs to be seen in all directions. And there must be at least one of them. Some aircraft might have two. Some aircraft put some on their wingtips as well. Again, it must be visible in all directions, so therefore it's usually at the top of the tail and it must be flashing and it has to it can be either red or white. So when you see the flashing that means it's the anti-collision light, and it you cannot distinguish anything about the direction the aircraft is flying. So if you see a flashing red or white aircraft at night, that just tells you that there's an aircraft over there. It doesn't tell you anything about the direction. You need the position lights and the information of red, green, white to be able to decipher which direction the aircraft is flying. So that's uh, anti-collision lights, and then we have landing lights. So landing lights are required for night flight, And they're usually found as a single white light on the nose of the aircraft or two white lights on the wings, either, you know, one on the left wing, one on the right wing, or sometimes there's lots of different combinations, but they are a white light that splays out light ahead of the aircraft and down so that when you come in for landing, you can see the surface of the runway. So again, it helps illuminate the runway or taxiway during night operations and the Airman information manual, the AIM of the FAR aim specifically encourages pilots to turn on their landing lights when operating below 10,000 feet day or night, and especially when operating in conditions of reduced visibility. So I want to repeat this because this is an FAA written question. The AIM specifically encourages pilots to turn on their landing lights when operating below 10,000 feet day or night. And especially when operating in conditions of reduced visibility. So remember that 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 is not a requirement, but it's encouraged by the FAA that you use that landing light. Cause again, they just want aircraft to be as visual as possible and be as safe as possible. And landing lights can help aid in doing that. Okay. So that has been aircraft lights And uh, next we'll get into lesson four, cockpit instruments, so the instruments inside our cockpit. And again, we're in section two, operations of aircraft systems, and we're moving on to lesson four. Okay, so next we're on cockpit instruments. So these are the instruments that you'll see on your dashboard as a pilot and that you need to have a great understanding of. We will go into more detail of how each one of these works, but this it will be like your overview, just how we did an overview of the aircraft systems on the outside of the aircraft. These are the instruments that connect to those systems and tell you more about, about your aircraft. This is the health of your aircraft and the attitude and situation your aircraft is in. So it's very important you understand these, and this will be an overview of those. So just like you need a deep understanding of the equipment on your aircraft, you also need a deep understanding of the instruments and gauges in the cockpit. These instruments and gauges are meant to give you information on your aircraft's orientation, direction, speed, position, and health status of the systems. If you're following along, we have a video that you can watch and I'll post that in the show notes. If you're listening to this, you can click on the show notes and and watch that video after you listen. So let's list these instruments discussed per aircraft system. So we'll talk about the aircraft system and then the instruments within that aircraft system. So the first system is the pitot-static system. And again, we'll have a lesson specifically on this where we go into more detail. But the instruments within the pedostatic system are the airspeed indicator, which tells you your indicated airspeed. The VSI, our vertical speed indicator, which tells you how fast you are Going vertically, so how how much you are gaining altitude, how fast you're gaining altitude or declining altitude, and then the altimeter which tells you your altitude, and then we have the vacuum system, and part of the vacuum system has several instruments, and that's the turn coordinator. So this is helpful to coordinate your turns. It tells you your roll as well as your yaw, and then your heading indicator, which is used for navigation, and used in conjunction with your magnetic compass. Your attitude indicator, which tells you your attitude in relation to the horizon. So this is very important for instrument flight or low visibility flight. And then a vacuum suction gauge, which tells you the health of your vacuum system. Next, we have the navigation system. We're just going to stay simple here and just go over VORs. But you also could have a GPS system or a, a DME, which tells you the amount of distance IUR uh, to a location, but let's just keep it simple and, and say that we just have VORs and then fuel system. So part of the fuel system, uh, you're going to have fuel quantity gauges and a fuel flow meter. Some of the, now not all of these are required by the FAA. We'll get into what's required and what's not, but these are sort of the most common, instruments that you'll see so again fuel quantity gauges fuel flow meter you also might have like a fuel pressure gauge in your in your aircraft then we have the engine system so that's going to be a tachometer which tells you your rpm as well as as counts uh total you know hours of uh, that the aircraft has been spinning and then you have the oil temperature and oil pressure gauges which are very very important to engine health And then we have the electrical system, which is going to usually just be consist of either circuit breakers or fuses, and then the ammeter, which uh, measures the the amps and the current flowing through your electrical system. And then we have the magnetic compass, which we mentioned that is not connected to the pedostatic, the electrical, the vacuum, nothing like that. All it uses is the great thing about magnetic compasses or compasses is that all it needs is the magnetic field of earth. And hopefully that doesn't go away anytime soon. So that's why the magnetic compass is highly critical to learn how to use, because if you lose these other systems, the magnetic compass will always be there. Uh, Then you usually have like a clock or a timer, uh, which tells you the time, may tell you the outside air temperature, Uh, as well near this and then it will hopefully be able to time so you can time your checkpoints i usually use my watch but a handy aircraft clock uh, is good for that and then i mentioned also the outside air temperature thermometer usually it's kind of included in the same little display as the clock but it might be somewhere else on your aircraft all right so that is the general list of aircraft instrumentation and what uh, sort of system they are in And if you want a picture, you can go to our Instagram. We have a lot of the stuff on our Instagram, these pictures. You can either do that or watch the video on YouTube, which is linked in the show notes. But if you want to check out our Instagram, we have a lot of good information there. And that's at part period time period pilot. So it's at part time pilot, but with periods between part time and pilot. Part time pilot wasn't available, so I had to go with what I could. But then also we have the visual aids in the lesson itself in our online ground school, which again, you can go to part-time pilot.com online and just click on the online ground school. Before we uh, continue, I want to talk about a glass cockpit. So there's going to be a question on your FA written, uh, possibly about a glass cockpit. And so we got to cover that. And then you also might be flying, if you're one of those lucky ones, that's flying in one of those newer aircraft who has a completely digital cockpit then you'll want to know uh, what that's all about. So a glass cockpit is often also referred to as a digital cockpit, as I just said. However, glass cockpit aircraft are aircraft with both digital and a limited number of analog instruments. So that's, I'm going to repeat that because that is what the FAA written might test you on. uh, One of the things is that a glass cockpit doesn't mean that everything is an LCD screen, but a lot of it is like the attitude indicator and your GPS and stuff like that. But you're also going to have some some good old school analog instruments, you know, like you have in the six pack, because again, those things don't fail as much. And if you have everything digitally and your digital screen poops out, you know, you're screwed. So you want to have that redundancy, and that's why glass cockpits are both digital and a limited number of analog instruments. So depending on who you ask, uh, one may be better than the other. I know a lot of pilots that believe there's less chance of a classic analog cockpit experiencing failures versus a digital glass cockpit. I am of that, that thought, and we'll go over how these analog instruments work. They're very mechanical. They've been working for hundreds and hundreds of years or sorry, not hundreds and hundreds of years, but the the mechanics of them have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. But with that said, there's many advantages of having a glass cockpit. Navigation is vastly improved and uh, with the use of GPS maps on led screens. And other instruments gain advantages when used digitally. For example, an advantage of an attitude indicator displayed digitally is that the horizon line extends all the way to the edges of the PFD or the screen. So, and I'm going to repeat that because again, this is an FA written question. An advantage of an attitude indicator displayed digitally is that the horizon line extends all the way to the edges of the screen as opposed to it attitude indicator where you just have that little artificial horizon so this big artificial horizon really gives you that immersive experience so when you're if you're flying in clouds you're flying ifr if you're going to that rating uh, or even if you're a vfr pilot and god forbid you get stuck in, in low visibility having that immersive experience and that big screen with the that artificial horizon extended all the way really makes you feel like you are seeing the horizon and really helps you out And it's a lot easier to trust that rather than trust this little artificial horizon. You should always trust your instruments, but that is an advantage of the digital display. But whichever cockpit you prefer, you should maintain proficiency in whichever you are flying. Now, this is a question that you might get from your examiner on the checkride. You know, they might say, "If you normally fly using analog instruments, but plan on flying a glass cockpit for the first time, you know, should you consider anything?" They might ask you something like that, and or they might they might hide it in a scenario. They might be like, uh, "Your your friend just bought a new airplane. It's got all glass cockpit, and you have a private pilot license that covers that aircraft, and so you can go take them flying. And you want to go on a cross country flight. Is there anything you should consider?" and what you should say is that you would strongly consider taking if not strongly consider actually doing and taking a few practice flights with an instructor that is used to that type or maybe maybe your friend who is uh you know has flown and is proficient with that glass cockpit and you want to become proficient yourself in that cockpit before venturing away from the airport with the glass cockpit. Uh there are many differences that can cause you to lag behind mentally. And again, I've mentioned this before, but a good and safe pilot is always ahead of the aircraft. And if you're trying to figure out the instruments, you're not proficient in the instrumentation. Uh, You're going to be behind the aircraft. And that is going to result in errors, human errors, which are, of course, the number one cause of accidents and cause of death. So don't do that. Be smart and um, get proficient. You know, always fly with instructors, spend the extra money you know, you can't spend the money if you're dead. So sorry to be gloom, but let's be safe out there. Okay. All right. So that has been lesson four cockpit instrument overview. That's lesson four of section two of our online ground school. And section two is operation of aircraft systems. Let's continue on. I think we can do one more lesson and we'll do that on, we'll talk about the electrical system. I kind of mentioned that Electrical system, we have the ammeter on our dashboard that helps us out with that. So let's go and let's talk about the electrical system in a little bit more detail. There's a video that you can watch, we'll post that in the show notes. And but if you're following along in our ground school, which I highly recommend, we have a couple visual aids that'll help with you. We have a complete diagram that shows the flow of current really breaks it down nice and easy shows you how the circuit breakers function in there how the master switch functions and all the components of the electrical system that including you know the sources of of that which we'll get to the alternator and the battery so highly recommend you you check that out or check the video out so you can get a good visual but let's get to the electrical system all pilots should know how electricity is produced stored and transferred within their aircraft most single engine small training aircraft has two sources of electricity that's two sources the alternator and the battery figure below so uh if you're following along there's a figure that shows the approximate locations of the alternator and battery although the battery can be found in other places of the aircraft but generally it's behind the engine Along the firewall, the firewall is the wall that divides the engine compartment and the cockpit. Uh, Because if there's an engine fire, you don't want that getting in your cockpit. The battery usually sits back there in a protective casing. But it can also be found, you know, under the seats or maybe in the baggage compartment and back. Uh, But it's usually uh, close. And the reason why it's close is because it's connected to the alternator, which we'll get in a sec. Because the alternator charges the battery. We'll get to that in a sec. So the alternator spins from a belt. So a belt attached to some gears on the alternator is attached to some gears on the engine. So when the engine spins, it spins these gears and it spins the belt. And that belt spins the gears on the alternator and it spins the alternator. So the alternator is a magnetic coil. And when that spins, it creates electricity. I'm not going to go into detail on how that works, but it's pretty freaking cool. And it's been... Being used to to create electricity, it takes rotational motion. It takes motion, you know, physical motion. Makes it rotational motion. And with the use of magnets, creates electricity. We can thank Tesla, all those guys. I, I can't remember the old scientists. I should. That's a shame. We can thank those guys way back when for figuring that out because we're still using it today. So that's how electricity is created from the engine. So we use gas to power the engine. And then the engine powers are electricity. So an aircraft bus serves as a central point of all electrical components. So when the aircraft is running, a belt connected to the alternator spins the alternator rotor and conducts electricity, which is then provided to the electrical bus. So it's called a bus. It's like basically a big bar that stores the electricity made by the alternator. A voltage regulator inside the alternator ensures that a constant voltage is supplied to the bus within an any range of engine RPM. So obviously when the RPM, the revolutions per minute of the engine increase or decrease, that's going to change how fast the engine spins the alternator. And the faster the alternator spins, the more electricity it conducts. If we go from low RPM to high RPM, that's going to change the alternator from spinning very slowly to very fast. And that's going to be a surge of electricity. And surges of electricity can be very, very dangerous. And so we have a voltage regular inside the alternator to make sure that no matter what RPM there is, that voltage that we supply to the aircraft bus is constant. Because if we just let a surge of electricity go through, through the aircraft bus, it could actually short out our whole electrical system. So everything that's powered electrically, our electric fuel pump, our, you know, any electric servos, our, any electric instruments, our lights, all that stuff can be shorted out if we get too big a surge of voltage. So we have a regulator in there uh, to ensure that we get a constant voltage, no matter what the RPM. And that regulator, again, is critical. The alternator in most trainer aircraft will be either a 14-volt or 28-volt alternator. So Piper Cherokee that I usually fly is a 14-volt alternator. Uh, it's generally rated a couple volts higher than the battery. So the battery, most batteries are 12 volts or 24 volts. So if you have a 14-volt alternator, you'll have a 12-volt battery. And so it's a couple volts higher uh, than the battery. And this is so that the alternator can supply those 12 volts to the aircraft bus and also supply a couple volts to the battery to charge the battery. Because if the alternator stops working, we have, if the belt alternator belt snaps, we will lose all electrical components. So when that happens, we have the battery as the backup and the battery will then start sourcing the electricity to our, all our electrical components. So we'll get to this way down the road, but We have an emergency checklist to reduce the amount of things that we're using on electricity when when we switch to the battery because the battery only has a limited amount of storage. If you have an electric car, obviously you know the battery eventually runs out. So if we get on battery, we want to be very diligent in making sure that we're only using electricity that we need to so that we can make that battery last as long as possible. But the battery is the backup to the alternator, and the alternator, when running, is charging the battery at all times. At all times that it's running, it's charging the battery to make sure that it's always fully charged when we need it. Uh, when the aircraft engine is off, the the battery provides power. So as I said, when the alternator stops running, if it breaks, the battery is going to provide power, but also when the engine's off, uh, the battery provides power and it is not being charged. So this means that the battery will only have a limited amount of time before it's charge runs out. And it's usually about 30 minutes is what you can bank on. Sometimes they can be 45 minutes, but I would bank on 30 minutes. And this is why in the case of alternator failures, again, pilots are told to find an alternate airport as soon as possible. And the battery is used to power. So when your aircraft is off, you need to check the lights, you need to turn on the starter, right? And you need to, because the starter's got to start the engine. So something has to power the starter to start cranking that engine. That's the starter, and the starter's powered by the battery. And it's therefore critical that it remains effective and charged at all times. So when you're doing your pre flight, you want to be kind of quick when you're checking the lights and stuff like that. You don't want to leave it on too long, or it can completely drain the battery. And then, as I mentioned, the battery is about either 12 volts or 24 volts, depending on your aircraft and your alternator that matches it. So again, I'll just, I'll reiterate this because it's uh, for your checkride and your checkride oral, you'll want to know this for your aircraft, but most general aviation trainer aircraft have an electrical system composed of a 14 volt alternator and a 12 volt battery. The primary electrical bus the switches to turn on the electrical systems and the circuit breakers. And we'll get into the switches and circuit breakers uh, next. So a master switch in the cockpit is used by the pilots to connect or disconnect the battery and or alternator, whatever is providing power from the electrical bus. So basically have your source, your electrical source, which is your battery and alternator. And then you have a switch that basically is like a valve for the electrical flow so you have the electrical flow coming out of your alternator or battery and it wants to go to the aircraft bus but there's a switch it's like a gatekeeper right and that's the master switch and when that's on the flow is allowed to go to the aircraft primary bus when it's off it breaks that flow and it stops it right there so that flow is not allowed to get to the the primary bus and it stops it there so it's like the gatekeeper saying uh, yes you may talking to the, the current of electricity as if it could talk right and it's saying you know when it's on it's saying you may you may pass and when it's off it's saying you shall not pass like like Gandalf in Lord of the Rings you shall not pass okay I'm um, sorry I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan anyways so let's get back to it okay some aircraft have two separate switches on the master switch one for battery one for alternator while others just have one for both so know your aircraft And now you can know when it has two switches, that's what they're for. Uh, To protect the electrical system from overload, the aircraft uses circuit breakers or fuses. So on the aircraft primary bus, so the flow, we have the flow starts at our alternator battery. It goes through the gatekeeper, our master switch, and when on, it goes through that and it goes to aircraft primary bus. Then the primary bus separates, separates the flow into single paths to our electrical system, so things that are powered by the electrical system. And again, if you're in our ground school, go check out this diagram. It helps visualize this. But so that we'll have a path from the the bus to our radio, we'll have a separate path from our bus to our lights, separate path from our bus to our transponder, our separate path from our bus to the, the electrical pumps, separate path from our bus to the pedo heat, and then a separate path from the bus to our aircraft starter and then on each one of those paths we also have we have a gatekeeper so we have a switch for each one of those right so we can have the master switch on so all the flows getting to the aircraft primary bus but then we can have all the switches of our individual components off all those gatekeepers saying you shall not pass and that means the flow Is only going to, it's going to stop on each one of those paths. It's going to stay at that primary electrical bus. But on each one of these paths between the primary bus and that gatekeeper, that switch that is between the primary bus and our actual instrument. So let's say the radios. So we have the primary bus and the flow wants to go from there to the radio. And in between the radio and the primary bus, we're going to have that gatekeeper, but then in between the gatekeeper, and the primary bus we're going to have either a fuse or a circuit breaker and these are to protect the electrical system from overload we use circuit breakers or fuses again that's between the electrical component and the primary bus and it's used to break the electrical pathway to the individual component in the case of an overload so let's say our alternator regulator voltage regulator is broken so we Rev up our RPM, we go really high RPMs and our alternator spins a bunch and creates a surge of electricity and our rate regular is broken, so that surge goes through our our primary bus. And if we have if all our gatekeepers are letting that flow pass, our switch aka our switches are turned on, that surge is gonna go straight to our individual components. So imagine a light bulb at the end of that. That light bulb, if it gets all that light bulb could just break it could you know cause a shortage or just burn out that light bulb if it gets too big of electricity cuz all these electrical things are only rated for a certain amount of voltage right so you want to protect that so we have another layer of protection beyond our alternator regulator and that is circuit breaks or fuses so older aircraft use fuses uh, when an electrical component is overloaded a fuse will overheat and melt okay that's what a fuse does when it when it has too much voltage. And when it when it melts, it breaks the pathway of current to the component. So it just stops it. It's like a, a fail safe, right? So it stops that electrical flow so it never gets to that individual component, never gets to our light bulb, and never breaks our light bulb. Okay. In order to restore that pathway and make the component operational, the fuse must be replaced. And this is why the FAA requires that a pilot flying aircraft with fuses, carry at least three replacement fuses for each component during a night flight. So that's a lot of fuses. So if you have 10 electrical components, that means you have to have a, a little case of 30 fuses, and you have to know how to replace those fuses. So this is, why, this is also why most new aircraft do not use fuses, but instead use circuit breakers nowadays. So when an electrical component is overloaded it's, and the aircraft is, has circuit breakers, its circuit breaker simply pops out. It'll just pop out, so it's like a button. It's like a little button, and it pops out. And basically, when it pops out, it's just this little, this little simple machine, this little device that when it has, when it gets a voltage over a certain amount, it pops it open and it breaks the pathway of current. So again, just like the fuse, it makes it so that current cannot continue and break our electrical component, our radio, our lights, whatever. And it pops out to restore the pathway. A pilot. Instead of replacing the fuses, a pilot can simply pop the circuit breaker back in. Caution must be taken in continuing a flight after uh, replacing a fuse or circuit breaker. Because it could be that this fixes it and you just had that one surge of voltage that broke it. When you pop that back in, you'll be fine. But more often than not, there's a larger issue at hand, and it's probably going to continuously pop that circuit breaker out or continuously burn up that fuse. Like, for instance, if your alternator regulator is broken, then every time you increase RPM, that might happen to you. So caution must be taken in doing this, and if you have to replace a fuse or a circuit breaker, you know I would deviate from your planned flight and go, go land and, and get that checked out. And again, we have a figure beautifully lays out what that, what all I was talking about. And then we have the video in the show notes. Hopefully this makes sense in audio format, but those visuals will always help. Okay guys. So that has been lesson five electrical system of section two operation of aircraft systems. So we're chugging along here and that's going to be it for this episode So in our next episode, we'll move on to lesson six of section two and lesson six is going to be vacuum systems. So we'll go over the vacuum system and then we'll probably have time to go into lesson seven, which is pedostatic system. Again, two important critical systems of your aircraft that you need to understand. So we'll talk about those next time. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you guys later. Hey guys, it's Nick. I want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there. You might be a student pilot that is, you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training after... Three years, five instructors, and $22,000, and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times. And then now, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, Don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant, because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot. Now, of course, it's not that we're not thinking, but it's that we understand things like weather, aerodynamics, what our instruments are telling us, what ATC is telling us. We have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them. And when we don't have to think about them, we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft, look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations able to solo for the first time, fly a plane for the first time, everything's great and dandy. Once you get into, you know, bad weather flying or flying at heavy heavily trafficked airports or speaking with ATC for Bravo clearance. ...or cross-country flight planning... ...and flying solo on a cross-country flight... ...things get a little more advanced. And when this happens... ...and you don't have a good understanding... ...of the ground school concepts... ...you're going to hit a wall. You're going to start to get behind the aircraft. And when this happens... not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working. So most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job. We have kids, we have family, we have school. We have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training. And most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you. And So how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern-day student pilot? Well, the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. You want to avoid being boring. You want to avoid that burnout. So how we do that is we present our material in multiple, multiple ways. And you're actually listening to one of them right now. You can consume our content via this podcast and an audio recording. You can do this while you're running, while you're driving in traffic. Again, tailoring to that busy part-time student pilot. or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community, form study groups, get questions answered 24-7, either their FAA written or their FAA checkride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts, the way we explain things in plain written English and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on online ground school and we'll see you inside the online ground school. Thanks for listening and I'll see you guys next week.